You know, it's funny, but just earlier today, I was being chirped online because I said something positive about the London Knights and being a guy that broadcasts for Kitchener. People couldn't believe I'd actually say something positive about the Knights. Well, I'm going two for two today, I think, because a former coach with the Guelph Storm, yes, the Highway 7 rivals, joins us on the podcast. Uh, Jared Scaldi making the time. Thank you, sir. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I always love talking OHL hockey and hockey in general. We'll get to that. And there's so much to talk about. In fact, when we first communicated on this, I said, we got to talk about that 1990 championship team, of course, with the Oshawa Generals that you were a part of. That'll be a key part of this. But for anybody not watching on YouTube right now, let's just start with that powder blue Kansas City Royals jersey you're wearing right now. Fantastic wardrobe choice today, Juice. Well, I had to. Well, thank you for the juice, too. I appreciate that. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I, I remember back when the 99-2000 was turning, but who's the greatest athlete of all time? And, of course, Michael Jordan, uh, you know, uh, Wayne Gretzky gets some mentions, and Muhammad Ali, and all these different great athletes. And uh, I remember it came up was that uh, Bo Jackson is probably the greatest athlete of all time, a guy that was an all-star in two sports. He was an all-star in football with the uh, LA Raiders. He was an all-star with the uh, Kansas City Royals. Unfortunately, career cut short. So it was like, what's the criteria here? Like, obviously, Jordan and Muhammad Ali and Wayne Gretzky and all these amazing athletes. And it was like, who is the greatest athlete of all time? And uh, I always have this debate with my son, Skate, about Bo Jackson's the greatest athlete, pure athlete that's ever played the game, uh, played a, a, any sport that I consider um, he's the best. I don't want to let that slide by too easily either. Is Skate the greatest name for the son of a hockey player? I would argue yes. <laughs> well, you got to ask Bob McKenzie, because I think once every couple of years, he'll tweet out uh, something about uh, the greatest. By the way, the greatest name in hockey is uh, Skate Scaldi. So uh, uh, Skate's here with us now and. uh yeah, and, and and you know, as much as I would love to take credit for that, I would love to say, yes, I named my son. It wasn't my decision. It was my wife's decision. And I'll just quick story is that, um, you know, we had our, our, our daughter's name is True, and she's 25 now. She lives in uh, Los Angeles, California. And then we had a son, and my wife was like, we should name him Skate. And I said, absolutely not. No way. We cannot name my son Skate. My first choice was Boria um, and that had no legs. I wanted Boria and she said, absolutely not. We're not naming our kid Boria after Boria Salming um, and skate one out and uh, we've got ourselves a skate scaldi. Absolutely amazing. And I want to come back to that California piece in just a moment too. But before that, one more thing from the background here, again, for those not watching on YouTube, uh, if Bo Jackson was the greatest athlete, of the 20th century is Pearl Jam the greatest rock and roll band is Eddie Vedder the greatest guitarist I'm just trying to figure it out trying to ask some questions about the background here absolutely Pearl Jam is uh, the be all end all and uh, Eddie Vedder and uh, starting from the, the 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 album 10 in the early 90s and uh, moving through that and you know as hockey players as we all know as you relate so much to music uh, where you were like I can hear a song and be like, I was playing for the Kentucky Thoroughblades at that time. I hear, um, you know, uh, a Tom Petty song. I'll be like, I was with the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. Uh, you know, you relate everything to your career 
from certain songs, what you played, I playing in St. John when, uh, you know, uh, uh, Trouble at the Hen House came out with uh, uh, the Tragically Hip. I remember sitting in the room with Marty Murray and Jamie Allison and uh, Jesper Madsen and different players, Todd Simpson, who became captain of the Calgary Flames. You're like, yeah, we were listening to Trouble at the Hen House in 1996, 1997. So this connects back to what you said a moment ago about True being in Los Angeles while you're making a home right now in Europe. And this all connects. And now you're talking about these songs that take you back to places where you played. Your Hockey DB page, Jared, reads like, I mean, one of the best of all Hockey DB pages. Would it be an insult or a compliment to say, hey, suitcase, welcome to the podcast? No, suitcase is fine. That, you know, I've, I've come to terms with suitcase a long time ago. Um, I, I always say, you know, this comes up in uh, actual real professional interviews about like, um, you know, you moved around a lot. Like, you know, the first thing you think of, and, and as a coach that recruited in the ECHL, you know, I, I look at uh, Hockey DB, I've looked at elite prospects, and I see a guy like, oh man, this guy's played a lot of teams. What's his deal? Like, uh, you know, and you know, to your point, you made initially tough to find someone to say something bad about me is that I look at it as that someone always wanted me. Somebody wanted me even more than the last team. So, um, yeah, there, there, there's, there's connections. You look at stuff and why guys move around. And this is what I I've said throughout my playing career is that, you know, my goal was always to play in the national hockey league, you know, since we've all been kids, it's the, the NHL to me was the be all end all of just, just everything. And, you know, being fortunate to be drafted in the Ontario Hockey League, to play in the Ontario Hockey League, and then to, you know, get the tremendous opportunity to play in the National Hockey League, even into my late 20s and 30s, was like, I want to play in the NHL. I had many opportunities to go to Europe in my mid to late 20s. Um, I had opportunities to sign with American League teams, IHL teams for longer term deals just to stay and have a home. But I was like, I didn't sign up to to for this to play in Europe. I didn't sign up to play in the IHL or the American League. My goal is to play in the National Hockey League. And even at 32, 33, I was still signing NHL deals. And, you know, one more game is one more lifetime dream achieved. And, you know, money aside of maybe security or whatever it may be, um, my goal is to play in the National Hockey League right till the very end when I just knew that it was no longer a possibility. So a lot of those moves, were not my decision. Uh, teams made decisions on me. And that's that's hockey. That's pro sports. Teams made decisions. There was also a many or a few that I made the decision that, you know what, I'm going to go where I have the best opportunity to play in the National Hockey League. And one of the biggest ones came up after the 99-2000 season. I was playing and I was with the San Jose Sharks under a contract, but I played in Utah in the IHL and uh, I had two offers. One was from the Dallas Stars and one was from the Atlanta Thrashers. And I sat down and I was like, man, you know, Atlanta's entering their second year. Um, you know, there could be opportunity there. Dallas wanted me as a depth guy and they told me you're going to start in the minors. I believe the team was in, uh, well, actually they were transferring back to Utah. And um, I said, you know what? I want to play in the National Hockey League. I don't want to play in Utah or uh, anywhere else. So I signed with Atlanta. Well, it turns out, you know, uh, Dallas Stars win the Stanley Cup. Potentially could have been 
part of it or whatever. But in my mind, I was like, where is the best opportunity? And I felt Atlanta Thrashers were the best opportunity, a young team that, that potentially could use my depth and my experience. So, you know, again, there's decisions that were, a lot of decisions were made upon me that were not my decision. Um, but there were a few that uh, I, I took the route of, uh, I want to play in the National Hockey League and give myself the best chance, even if it's one more game. At the end of it all, Jared, it was Japan of all places. We talk to guys all the time that maybe toil in the minors a bit, finish a career in Europe. You're going to be the first absolutely to have finished off in Japan. What on earth led to that move? Well, I was in the Swedish uh, top league. And like I, I just said, we're, there, there hits a point in your career where you have to be honest with yourself. And this never goes. Like you, you see the game, you read the game, you think the game. Uh there comes a point when, and it hits everybody differently. Sometimes 33, sometimes 35, other guys, 37, 38. I was 36 and I was like, I, I just don't have the legs. I don't have the, you know, I can see the plays. It's, it, it's just not happening. And I, I played basically fourth line in the Swedish uh, top league my last year there. And uh, I called my agent after the season. I said, um, I want to go to Japan. I, I just think he's like, are you crazy? He's like, that, that's career suicide. I go, I'm 36, 37. I'm not getting a better offer than this. And it, it honestly, Mike, was probably one of the best decisions I made. It was absolutely amazing for my family, for myself, a cultural experience that you just can't, uh, you can't replicate it. You just don't go to Japan. It's just so expensive. It's just uh uh, such a unique country and then to be able to you know be paid to to play there and experience that was just an, an amazing experience I I remember leaving there the last day of the season and the the there's the, so many things that happened and I, I, we had a the team manager was picking us up and bring us to the airport and the whole team at like six in the morning was outside and you know, saying goodbye. And I remember crying. I've never cried at the end of a season to say goodbye to my teammates. You're going to see them again. You'll see them down the road. You, you know, and I remember just having this is an emotion, uh, overwhelmed emotion of leaving there of the experience I had of playing in Japan. It, I, I recommend to anybody at the end of their career to go to Japan. It, it is, it is a mind altering, great experience. What about the actual hockey? What was it like? Well, this is how I describe it. <clears throat> They're well-conditioned. They work extremely hard. It's their culture. Everything they do, they do extremely hard and, and work at it. Um, they're very undersized, which was great for me because I played at roughly six foot, 175 to 180 pounds. I felt like Eric Lindros playing in Japan. I would take face-offs against guys that were five foot six, 140 pounds, and I felt dominant. I've never felt dominant physically in my career ever. I always felt the 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 bottom part of that as being a little undersized, and uh, it was uh, it was a great feeling. I'm not going to lie to be knowing that you're probably the biggest, strongest guy on the ice, which I've never felt. But they can skate. They have a lot of skill. The thing that they lacked was was hockey sense. A lot of their development comes from the NHL highlight type reels. So a lot of stuff they did um, 
part of my job was to try to help some of them too, is that like, it's okay to cycle a puck. It's okay to chip a puck behind a defenseman. It's not all one-on-one toe dragging guys and stuff. So there was a lot of learning stuff there, but um, again, it was, uh, it, it was good. I mean, it, it, for me, it was just, it's just always the, the size factor. Um, generally the league was a lot smaller than most leagues uh, height and, and girth wise, you could tell from players. There's that name, Eric Lindros, which will, of course, come up again in this discussion today. Let's get into the hockey side and a young Jared Scaldi who wanted to play, as you mentioned. It was the dream to be in the National Hockey League. When was your love for the game ignited? What got you into hockey? You know what it really was with the Niagara Falls Flyers? Um, I, I remember going to the old Niagara Falls Memorial Arena and um, – I, I must have been about six, seven, and I didn't come from a hockey background. My 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 dad never played. My mom hated sports, um, and we we went to an afternoon game for the Niagara Falls Flyers. Actually, I believe it might have been the Peterborough Peets. Believe it or not, the Peterborough Peets. But um, the and I just remember like, what is this? And I just from then on in, we became season ticket holders, and I just really grew from the Niagara Falls Flyers. Was sort of where I really started wanting to do this and really having a passion for the game. And, and, you know, I, I started off as a goalie though, because Mike Palmatier was the guy every Saturday night at 29 getting absolutely shelled for the Leafs in the eighties that uh, I want to be a goalie watching him flop around in that paint and make saves and just get shelled with 50 shots a night. I signed up as a goalie one year and realized when you're, seven, eight years old, it's pretty boring. You don't get those shots Mike Palmatier faces every night. Mm -hmm. Next year, I showed up at tryouts as a forward and made AAA and went on from there. Now I'm wishing that I was in my usual podcast corner that I call it at home because you've got Eddie Vedder behind you. I've got my signed picture of Mike Palmatier behind me, but I'm at work today. And so I use the studios at the radio station, but I met Mike at a card show and growing up as a Leafs fan, also a huge fan of Mike Palmatier. That's interesting. The connection there. He was, I, I, I loved him. I don't remember as a kid, um, Growing up in Niagara Falls, you could go to Buffalo Sabre games anytime we wanted. You know, you can get tickets for $10 on the street. And, you know, and so I went to a lot of Sabre games, but I was never a Sabre fan. And then like once or twice a year, my dad would come home with a pair of tickets to Maple Leaf Gardens. I remember that first time from watching on TV to actually seeing it live. It was, I, I still have those feelings and emotions of walking to Maple Leaf Gardens for the first time and seeing a live Toronto Maple Leaf, seeing that crest, seeing Daryl Sittler, Landon McDonald, Boria Salming, Mike Palmatier, Ian Turnbull, all these guys. And then to see the sights and the sounds that you see on TV was just incredible. And of all the teams, of all the stops you made in your pro career, Jared, not once with the Toronto Maple Leafs after all of that. Must have broke your heart a little bit. Well, I'll tell you what broke my heart the most. This was what broke my heart the most was the 1989 draft when three Belleville Bulls went in the first round, when when Scotty Thornton went, when Robbie Pearson went, and then Steve Bancroft went, all three Belleville Bulls. That was my draft. I went 26 to New Jersey, but uh, I knew going in that I had not spoken to the Toronto Maple Leafs before the draft, so... I knew there wasn't much of an opportunity, but I remember thinking like, man, they have three first round picks and uh, 
um, you know, is what it is. But uh, yeah, no, no stops ever in Toronto. 26th overall second round to the Devils, as you just mentioned. Uh, 15th overall first round to the Oshawa Generals. What was it like for you at that first camp with the Gens? It, it was overwhelming because, um, you know, there's that decision you make. I was 15, and again, I, I was under, I was probably about 150 pounds, you know, 5'10, 150 pounds. And uh, um, of course, you remember Chris King. Uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, Winnipeg Jets. Uh, I used to work for Roger Nielsen. Uh, well, I went to Roger's school for years uh, since I think I was 11 or 12 up in Port Hope, Ontario. And so I I went to his, his camps every summer and got to know Roger and all these pros that came there. And uh, Chris's brother, Greg King, uh, oh, sorry, I, I graduated out at what 14 is the last year you could attend a hockey school or something and you could apply to be an instructor or a, a rink rat. They added a position for like a rink rat that just hung at the rink all day, shoveled the Zamboni snow, took care of the locker rooms. And so I applied and I got to work for Roger for uh, six weeks in the summer. And um, at the end of the day, there was always ice for us and we go out and skate. And I remember Greg King, came up to me and at that point hockey was different then than now you know now it's all you're going to play in the gthl for the toronto junior canadians and then you're going to do this and then you're going to do that and then it's all we were just playing playing i was thought i was a good player you don't know where you're at around ontario or even your region and uh greg king said to me he goes uh you're a good player you can play junior b and i was that's the first anybody ever said that to me and he goes uh you know, he was playing for the uh, Lincoln, uh, St. Mary's Lincolns out in Western Ontario. And uh, he said, I, I can get you a tryout. So I remember I called my dad. I said, hey, uh, I can get a tryout junior B. And sure, you know, so finished the camp, went to St. Mary's for uh, training camp and did extremely well. Guy by the name of Angie Nigro said, uh, listen, we can't keep you. We can only keep a couple 16-year-olds, but we want you next year. Here's a couple aluminum sticks to show that we want you back next year, you know, a couple blades um, and go play and we want you next year. And so I got back and I was like, man, I don't want to play minor hockey anymore. I, I minor midget or major bantam. I forget what it was at the time. And I want to play junior B. So I tried out for the Niagara Falls flyer, Niagara Falls Canucks. They were stacked. I got cut after two days. I went to the Port Colburn schooners, got cut. I went to the St. Catharines Falcons, got cut. The worst team in the Golden Horseshoe was the Fort Erie Meteors. By far the worst team. I went there. I made the team. I got uh, Rookie of the Year, played a ton. 15-year-olds don't play Junior B with that kind of ice time. A lot of ice time, and then I'm going the first round. So at that day at the draft at North York Arena, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know if I was going third, fourth, fifth round. And then when Sherry Basson stepped up and selected me in the first round, it was a complete shock. I, I could not believe it. I was just frozen. Um, incredible memory. Boy, and that name is a name synonymous with the Ontario Hockey League for many a year. A guy that's been on this podcast before and can tell a story with the best of them. What do you, how well did you get to know Sherry over your years? And what stories do you remember of him?
the first thing is, oh, he scratched his ear before he talked. Um, you know, Bass is like a father figure to me. Um, you know, being 16 years old, going to Oshawa, it, it was a it was a confusing time after um, I was there for two years. Bass was there with, uh, um, you know, the, the the staff that was in place, and, and Paul Terrio was the head coach, and. You know, you don't know what's going on. I remember we got a letter in the mail that uh, Paul Terrio and Sherry Basson were no longer back with the organization. And, you know, you don't understand. You don't know what's going on. And Rick Kornacchia, who was the assistant coach, was taking over as head coach. And Frankie J, who passed away a few years ago, a brilliant, brilliant hockey man, took over as a general manager. And, um, you know, my memories of Sherry Basson, again, that father figure, uh, just can't say enough of what he's done for me and so many players. And, you know, he's a big personality. He's a big part of the Ontario Hockey League history, the CHL history, uh, pure hockey man. And I, I just, I love the guy. I absolutely love the man and what he's done for so many players. When that change happened, uh, coincidentally, it's the year that you end up making that championship run, 89, 90, a lot of outsiders have said, and, and I'll include myself among them just as a fan of the game at the time, Jared, but that Memorial Cup is the best Memorial Cup that the Canadian Hockey League has, quite frankly, ever seen. When you were in it, did it feel special? Um, I don't know. Uh, obviously, my first Memorial Cup. It was a lot of overwhelming. Now, the, the, the biggest thing for me was that, and, and you'll remember this, Mike, was the Hamilton Dukes were supposed to host it. And they were so bad. They, it was just a, a, you know, they were trying, they were trading for every overage and every kind of veteran guy to make a competitive team. It didn't happen. And, and then Mr. Branch decided to, uh, that the Lane Division and the M's Division champions would, would be in it. And then they would play a seven game series to decide who's the host and who's the champion, which is, is, is so unique. So we beat the Peterborough Peets in the second, we beat the Cornwall Royals with Owen Nolan, John Slaney. We beat them in the first round. We went to Peterborough. Mike Ricci was their star player. He was going into the, his, his draft year. He's, he's my age, but because of his birthday, he was a later draft, the 1990 draft. And one of the, if not the best player at the time, one of the best players in the league. And, um, so we beat Peterborough and we knew we were going to the Memorial Cup, which was unique in itself. We still had the finals to go and we played Kitchener and played them in seven in an absolute battle. Both teams were going, but who's host, who's champion. We end up beating Kitchener and we go in as uh, champions. But I remember this back then the Quebec league was always a step below and Laval made it, made it. They had Gino Ajik, they had uh, McCarthy, tough, uh, I can't remember his first name. Uh, they had Marty Lapointe. You know, they had they had a good team, but the Quebec League was always just it was always the Western Ontario. Kamloops was a wagon. They were an absolute wagon. With you know, Corey Hirsch was in that. They had Daryl Sador. They had Scott Niedermeyer. They had Len Barry was the CHL Player of the Year. They had uh, Dave Chizowski, who was the last year's first overall pick. I mean, they were loaded. So we went in going like. How did we get here? Now, we did have the X Factor, the big E, on our side. So we, we had Lindros, but we knew we were good. We knew we were good. 
Um, but I always remember thinking going into that tournament, like how good is Kamloops? And it played out. We played four games. Uh, two went to double overtime. One went to overtime. We beat Laval in the first game, I believe was like 5-2. And then every game was just, uh, you know, it, it was incredible. Uh, you don't appreciate it when you're going through the the drama and the intensity. You're just playing. But, you know, looking back, I mean, there. I remember that last game, the Moral Cup final. I think Kitchener had three, four breakaways um, in overtime. And Freddie Brathwaite made those saves, who came in halfway through the game because of an injury to Kevin Butt, who Freddie wasn't even our starter. We had our backup in, and it was incredible. When Billy Armstrong scored that goal, it was, um, man, it was, it was uh, you know, like you said, it, it was an incredible World Cup. You don't appreciate it when you're going through it from the standpoint how big it is. You appreciate the teammates and the effort and, and uh, the excitement at the time. That Kitchener team that you had to beat in the final to go in as champion was a seven-game series, as you mentioned. But you guys were down 3-1 in the series and had to battle back to win it in seven. And one thing I remember about that drive to Kitchener, uh, what would that be, game five? No, it might have been, no, it was game six because it would have been in Kitchener, was that that damn 401, we left at the right time. We did everything right on our part. And we pulled into the odd, like, half hour before warm-up. You remember, like, not ideal for teenagers to be preparing for the biggest game of their lives, all of us. And uh, what I do remember, I think Lindros had a hat trick that night. I do remember him having a huge night. And we beat him. Uh, in game six at the odd and it was huge because that was like sort of we were down and uh, we were managed to come in but I what, I, what I really stands out is that we got there late uh, uh, regular uh, later than we would normally want because of traffic getting to Kitchener maybe it was on a Friday or maybe it was on a Monday who knows on the 401 right absolutely true about that and it's it's even worse to this day no question about it uh, the biggie and, and the phenomenon that he was when he came to the league. Uh, I spoke to Fraz on this podcast, Ian Fraser, the captain of that championship team that you were a part of. And he talked about the integration of Eric to a team that was already well-built and tight-knit. What was, what was it like, that conversation around, geez, we're going to have to figure out a way to welcome a presence like this onto the Oshawa Generals? It's funny you brought up Fraz, great friend to this day. Talk to Fraz all the time. Um, I remember, so there was a, it was the first year of the CHL rankings. You know, they didn't rank uh, the league, the leagues, the three leagues like that. And it was the first year. And Kamloops ran it from day one right across as the best team in Canada. And we just kept climbing to, we became like the second best team. And it, you know, it felt good and stuff. And I remember, of course, you know, the whole Sault Ste. Marie thing with Eric. And um, they had to get this kid in the league. Like, he he can't be playing in Detroit CompuWare, Tier 2, or whatever the league was at the time. Um, it was World Junior. And they changed the rule. You could trade your first-round pick. And we had heard that we were on his list of five teams. And um, so we had a team meeting about whether we wanted, whether this was good for us. And I remember me and Fraz having a debate about it. You know, and I'm like, if, if he's going to make us better, we want him. And, and you know, we had 
some real good conversations about it. At the end of the day, the team's going to do what they feels best for all of us. And, and of course, bringing Eric Lindros onto your, the best team in the Ontario league by the rankings at that time was a no brainer for management. And, um, you know what, we had a close knit team, but, but Eric came in and I, I try to, we're going through something right now with Connor Bedard and the excitement with him. And I, I, you know, I read some stuff the other day. I'm a fan like everybody else. I've never seen the kid play. I don't know anything about him. I'm just reading what, what everybody else is reading about him. And I've watched world junior and, um, you know, the combination of like a Crosby that came in and how phenomenal he was and you knew it and McDavid with his speed. And they're, they're talking about the combination of Bedard with his shot and, you know, his, his, his body composition, how strong he is and stuff. And one thing's overlooked because of Eric's controversy around Sault Ste. Marie, Quebec, Philadelphia, all that stuff. He was a generational player that we have not seen since you know that size that strength that skill there was a meanness to it there was a competitive meanness to it like Eric had to fight the heavies like back in the OHL now with the three fight rule and and different things back then everybody wanted a piece of him if they were 16 to 20 somebody wanted a piece of Eric and he didn't back down from anybody i remember going into places and he would fight a 20 year old and it was like oh my god like we didn't have the social media i remember his first uh, uh game was in oshawa and he even wear 88 i believe he wore a different number because they, they didn't give him 88 for his first game and the building was sold out oshawa civic center 3500 people maybe top people off the rafters 4000 i don't know and we had a, two cameras. We had CBC and TSN. Two cameras were at the thing, which was a big deal. That was a huge deal. Can you imagine now a guy like that? It was like playing against, playing with Mark Messier at 16 years old. Like he dominated, dominated, generational player, surefire Hall of Famer, deserves everything that he's getting. Aside from all the stuff that, that's happened in different stops, doesn't matter that this guy at 16 years old and what he was able to do it was absolutely incredible so it was fraz that i had checked in with that gave me juice by the way so maybe i should have checked with you before that but he's the one oh you're gonna love talking to juice he also <laughs> insisted that i ask you who was tougher him or brent grieve oh i gotta give fraz you that he he oh and here's the here's the difference Fraz is a lefty. Fraz is sneaky tough. So Fraz, you'd go in, what was he, 5'10", 5'11", you know, nice guy. You didn't think anything twice. And then Fraz would just start chucking lefts, and it was impressive. But it, but here's the one thing about Fraz. He was tougher off the ice in parking lots outside bars and, and, and different scenarios that happened. Nicest guy you could ever meet. Ian Fraser is probably the nicest human being you'll ever meet. But when it gets time to throw down, he, he is sneaky tough. Did he give you the nickname Juice? No, I've had that since I was about seven, eight years old. I, okay. Everybody come, go to Niagara Falls, ask for Juice. That's <laughs> what I'm known for. I'll remember that. Okay. So speaking of nicest guys you've ever met, this one, and I'll give you a little bit of a backstory. So I used to work, I used to broadcast games with Mike Torquia. And 
love the guy to death. And one of our first road trips together took us up to North Bay, where we ran into another former teammate of yours from that Oshawa team, Corey Banica. And Ooh. Torch and Banica hug each other like they're long lost friends. And I'm, this is kind of new to me. I'm standing back going, wait a minute. You know, Memorial Cup opponents, Banica wins, Torch loses. And, and here they are, like they're the best of friends, even though they were opponents in that championship. Mike Torquia said, you are the nicest guy anybody will ever want to meet. So how do you like that from the opposing goaltender? It's amazing. I don't know if Corey Bannock is the nicest guy you'll meet. He's an unbelievable friend. You want him as a friend, Corey Bannock. He's <laughs> the best friend you can have, and he does such a great job scouting. He's with Arizona now. But I have a funny, uh, when I was in Guelph coaching, and uh, you know the odd, the, the media meal uh, is all the way up top. So, you know, I, I do my team meeting, and then I go up to the media room, and I see Corey Banica and Bill Armstrong in there. We see each other and we're just chatting, having the best time, oblivious to anybody. And Kitchener's always packed. It's always packed up there with, with media and scouts and everybody. And we're just having a good old time. And then Torch gets up. We don't even see him. We don't, we don't see anybody but ourselves, the three of us. And we're just talking and Torch comes up and he's like, you have to rub it in in this building do you hey you three guys and it's like oh hey torch how are you you know and so i got to spend a couple of years with torch being in guelph i saw him obviously a ton uh in kitchener and in guelph and stuff like that but uh it's funny the respect you have for those guys like gilbert Dion and uh you know stephen rice i i got to see over the years uh the legend shane stevenson you know different guys that uh, joe mcdonnell I, i'd see from time to time with his scouting and when I was in the OHL and the tremendous respect you have for those players. Cause I couldn't imagine being on that end of it at that age of um, losing that game. Like I, I, I just so fortunate that I was on this end of it uh, with Oshawa. I, I just could not imagine carrying that um, around because it's such an important tournament, such an important moment in our lives. Like, you know, a lot of us were, drafted um you know waiting to hopefully get an entry-level contract some of our guys were just hoping to get an invite to training camp or you know there's just such an important moment in your life and it's not completely defined by one game but man i'm very fortunate that i was on the the, the right side of that game there's a great picture of torch leaning against the boards at the rangers bench joe mack still standing behind the bench in the aftermath of that loss and i think the picture tells the entire story with the looks on their faces but for you what do you remember of the moment that armstrong's shot made it through and you had just won that memorial cup well i, I was on the ice and i remember the puck got rimmed around in army i believe he had one goal all year uh just kept it in Kept it in at the blue line. I remember going to the net and there was a wrist turn and just went in. We, we all thought at the moment, I think even Steve, Rom uh, Steve Romanuk uh, from TSN called Scott Lewick, scored the goal. Thought it was tipped by him. It was actually John Uniak tipped it. And I just remember frantically skating around the ice. And then it was just mayhem from there. I, you don't really remember much from there. But I, I know Army to this day, he was only trying to keep the puck in. He actually wristed it and turned the other way in case it got blocked and he had to defend and it ended up going in. So, um, you know, uh, it, it, it was just 
bedlam after that. I just just can't even describe the feeling of seeing your every individual teammate, your parents are in the stands and friends and are, are all in the building. Because what made that was so unique too is obviously Kitchener and Oshawa were meeting midway in Hamilton. I'm from Niagara Falls, 30 minutes down the road. And, you know, to this day, I think uh, the whole city of Niagara Falls was there, 71,000, but the building only held 16,000. So everybody I talked to, that they said they were at the game. But anyways, it was... It was such a unique experience. I, I What I do remember is we stayed at a hotel at the top of the street from the Cops Coliseum. And uh, we had a ritual of some guys wanted to walk a little bit. So the bus would drive a little bit. Four or five guys would get off. It would drive a little bit. A couple more guys off. And some guys just got off when we got to Cops. And I remember walking up to Cops. And it was crazy because it was half Kitchener, half Oshawa people. And we're walking through the crowd and fans are cheering us and I, that for me was the first time it really, you know, cause it, the team did a good job of keeping emotions in check and just everything. And it, it's, it's a huge, you know, none of us have ever played anything like this before, but I remember that's when it hit me was walking into cops and seeing the excitement even before warm up outside in Hamilton was incredible. That's a really interesting ritual. Would it be too far, too much of an exaggeration to call it a superstition? A little bit. I think it started on the first game. Some guy, it was a little bit far to walk completely. So a couple guys wanted to walk, you know, whatever. So they let some guys off and then we, a couple guys off, a couple more guys. And then eventually we all ended up in the room and it was down that street to that. I think it's the Admiral hotel now at the top of uh, in close to Hamilton there. And uh, yeah, it was just a little, probably ritual, probably superstition, a little combination of both. So 30 plus years later, uh, what place does that ring hold? Is it is it stored away somewhere safe? Does it get pulled out from time to time? Have you lost it in all your travels? I broke it one time. I did drop it and I had to get it uh, fixed. But um, you know, it, it it holds up there. there. There's so many memories. Like when you when you go through, you know, just being drafted. You know, to really put it in perspective, um, you know, to being drafted in the first round of the Ontario Hockey League, to being drafted the National Hockey League is a is a tremendous achievement, and and you appreciate it later on, especially after coaching in the Ontario Hockey League, having a son that was drafted by the Oshawa Generals, you know, just to be drafted in the Ontario Hockey League is an achievement in itself. And, you know, playing your first NHL game, I played it in Pittsburgh um, at 19, scoring your first NHL goal. I won a championship in Orlando and stuff, but winning World Cup's got to be right there as one of the greatest achievements I've ever done. It is so hard to win. It is extremely hard to win. There's so many teams. There's different, three different leagues, so many factors. You're, you're teenagers. Um, you're not professionals yet. A lot of factors going in. you got school. You've got a lot goes in. you got pressure from parents, from, you know, who knows what everybody's going through in that moment. And to have a collective group win that is is something I always hold dear and every single one of those guys I see guys I sometimes I haven't seen them in 20 years and you just pick right up and you hear these stories all the time it's uh whether it's Joe Basillo, Craig Donaldson uh, Paul O'Hagan you know I, I I've been fortunate in pro hockey to be around Freddie Brathwaite I worked with him at uh, U18 Team Canada um, you know, Billy Armstrong's a great friend, you know, Corey Banica, Ian Fraser, Brent Grief, Mikey Craig, you know, like just incredible guys that, that you, you, you stay in touch with. And then every once in a while, you still, 
uh, you know, we'll have a Zoom call or a, something comes up. So it, it's great. It's great memories and one of the greatest things I've ever gone through in my life. I got to know, as an Oshawa general, of course, and you kind of alluded to it with that first OHL experience with the Niagara Falls uh, Flyers, and it was the Peterborough Peets, and then there was Roger Nielsen's camp that you were attempt, uh, attending. Obviously, a legendary coach with the Peets and elsewhere. You go through the Peets on the way to that Memorial Cup, etc. What was the rivalry like as a player involved in it? Oshawa-Peterborough is my favorite rivalry in the year. from the moment you stepped into Oshawa that you hate Peterborough. You hate Peterborough the moment, like well, you can bring up London Knights, Kitchener Rangers. That, that, I, I'm so, what London Knights are doing, and I, again, I coached against uh, London Knights with Mitch Marner and Kachuk and Dvorak and nothing but respect for what the Hunters have done there. I've known nothing, Windsor, any of these teams. It's Peterborough and, and it's so funny after being on the OHL for so long and then coaching Guelph and going into Peterborough, I was like, we have to win this game. This is one game we have to win is in Peterborough. You just, it's ingrained in you from day one when you put on that Oshawa Generals jersey is that uh, Peterborough's not your friend. Does that make you really divided when you look at this OHL championship matchup? You got London and Peterborough going to the championship. I'll take London all the way. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love spoken like a true gem right there. I, I see those colors and that Pete Pete's thing and just, and I have nothing respect for Dick Todd and, and Jeff Tui and all those great, great men that have gone through there and done such a great job, that organization, Mike Ricci. And, um, but man, um, you know, Corey Banneka lives in Peterborough, so I, every opportunity I get, I love. He's an Oshawa guy living in Peterborough, and I just love giving it to him about living in Peterborough. I did not know that about Banneka. I will remember that. He keeps oh. it quiet. He keeps it real quiet that he lives in Peterborough. <laughs> I love it. That's perfect. I'm going to keep that in mind and use it uh, accordingly. Uh, after the championship, uh, you know, and as much of an Oshawa general as you clearly are, we've just noted uh off to the Belleville Bulls in, in a pretty big trade for uh Scott Pearson but what was it like going through that devastating um here's the thing I have the utmost respect for Eric Lindros and like I mentioned before that what it was incredible to to be part of that journey you know with him for that half year and then part of the next year and, and here's a life lesson that I, I, for myself and for other people, you play pro sports and you're successful because you have an ego. We all have egos. And I believe to be successful in, in any sport, you, you have a tremendous ego and a drive. But here's what, here's what happened. This is my side of the story. It was my time to be a star in the Ontario Hockey League. It was my time. Forget the fact that I just signed an NHL contract. I played an NHL game. I could not accept the fact that Eric was the man. And looking back, it's so childish. It's so stupid. It's, you know, but 
And I, I experienced it when I coached Guelph where the pecking order of age was everything. And I didn't buy into it not then. And after my learning experience, I don't care if you're 16, if the night, if you're out playing the 19 year old, you play, it's not a pecking order in the league. It's, it's about winning. It's about development. I couldn't accept that Eric was the man. And I asked for a trade out of Oshawa and uh, Frankie J, the, the most successful GM in the history of the Ontario Hockey League, one year, one Memorial Cup, and he went back to scouting. So Jeff, uh, 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 Wayne Daniels took over, and I remember how hard it was. I uh, My agent was Rick Curran, which was Lindros's agent too. We had the same agent. I said, I can't do this. I want to be traded. Like I just and went to Wayne Daniels. I asked to be traded. He ended up trading me. It was the right thing for everybody. You know, I was a centerman. Lindros was a centerman. We had another centerman there called Dale, Dale Craigwell, who won, we won the World Cup with, played on World Junior. It was the, I probably did Oshawa a favor by asking to be traded because they, they needed someone to play with Lindros. They traded me to Belleville for Rob Pearson, which ended up being an gr- unbelievable combination. You know, I think Pearson had 60 goals. Lindros had 76 or something like that. It worked out. Personally, it crushed me leaving Oshawa. It was like leaving your home, leaving everybody. Now, I was grateful to go to uh, Dr. Vaughn in Belleville. I lived with him. Larry Mavity was there. You know, we were a middle of the pack team. Oshawa went back to the finals against Sault Ste. Marie. I thought I was going to be going to Sault Ste. Marie. Um, worked out. I had a great experience in Belleville. I still have some great friends there and the Vaughn family treated me so well and it worked out for everybody oshawa got someone to play with eric i got to fulfill my ego and be the man in belleville and you know moved on from there but but yes it it was difficult it was difficult it was a great learning experience for myself something that i hopefully could pass on to other kids and stuff and and hopefully in guelph with some of the guys there that i was able to learn from that experience but uh i asked to be traded and um Again, it was it was just pure immaturity. You know, it's interesting how we look back on things like that when we arrive at this stage in our life, isn't it? And when you just mentioned that, Jared, about, you know, maybe imparting some of those lessons to players you coached in Guelph, I wondered how much of an experience just like the one you talked about would have factored into your coaching of young men, too. Oh, incredible. You know, to go through that and, and put egos aside and, and what's best for the team and and, and the biggest thing in my coaching is like impacting that I, I'm here to help you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not working against you. I'm here to work with you and, you know, learning from that experience and stuff um, has been very impactful in coaching and in life in general, and just how immature we can be and how we get so self-centered and so our egos take over certain things that, uh, you know, w- you know, was it that would have been the best thing for me to stay in Oshawa? Uh, maybe, maybe not, but how I handled it definitely could have been handled better on my end. What was it like playing for Mav? I love Mav. Um, you know, Mav was good. It, it was going from a whole different culture. You know, the, the biggest thing with Oshawa was that, you know, you went to school, you, the, the, the professionalism of Oshawa was, was incredible. And, and that's credit to Sherry Basson and the work he, he did for so many years there. Um, you know, like I said, Doc Vaughn is just 
love the guy and his family, still in touch with some of his kids. Um, you know, Mavlet let you play. Uh, he was hard, hard on you, but he let you play. And, and where I was at my stage of my career, that was the perfect thing for me. Um, end up having a very good year there and then moved on to the New Jersey Devils the next year. But, uh, you know, I, I love Mav. There's so many great memories of him and his uh, old school cowboy boots. And just it was a more of a pro environment where, you know, Bass kept the thumb on you. You know, Frankie J, Wayne Daniels, guys like that. And um, but I, I'm very grateful for my time in Belleville as well. You just mentioned Jersey and and went on from Belleville to be in Jersey. And I, I remember some of the conversations back then, Jared. And there was a lot of talk that, you know, you were perhaps ready to be on that Devils club before the Devils were ready to put you on the pro roster. But how how was that? How were those early years when, you know, some were saying, look, this kid's good enough to be in this league right now and you're still kind of bouncing back and forth? It's funny how your mindset. I went in with no expectations. I've never been to an NHL training camp. I don't even know what to expect. I just went in not expecting to make the team. And next thing I know, I'm thriving at training camp, like in the inter squad games. So of course now they, and again, I I'm only, I'm still only about 170 pounds, you know, and it's a man's league. This is like a tough Ken Danico, Scott Stevens, you know, these are when walking around the room, looking at these guys going, Oh my God, like Scotty Stevens had muscles in his jaw that when he chewed gum and it was just incredible. I was just playing, played some exhibition games, scored, made it to the end. And Jimmy Schoenfeld was a coach at the time. Of course, Lou Lamorello was a general manager. And um, they're like, we we were seriously thinking about keeping you as an 18 year old and sent me back and, and stuff. But looking back there, there's no way I could have played in that league at that age. Um, you know, a, a good training camp, a couple good training camps, um, knowing myself now mentally, physically, I, I don't know if I was would have been ready for that that environment at that age. Sure would have been nice, obviously, but I, I just remember that it wasn't until the the innocence, you lose the innocence of just I was just going to training camp to like I gotta make the team. Then you start putting the pressure on yourself, pressure on yourself to make team. Now you're turning pro. I gotta make jersey. I gotta make jersey. And then you get in your way. You get in your way. Go play. Have fun. That's how we started playing this game was to have fun. Go. And that was my first training camp with no expectations. I don't even know. I didn't even know what per diem was, you know, that we got per diem. You know, what is this? My paycheck? What? Like, I don't even know what this money's for. And you just play. You show up excited, grateful every day you go to the rink. And that's one thing with, with coaching, too, is I first day of training camp, I'll tell teams, I said, I'll tell teams that – we're the luckiest guys on the face of the earth because every morning we get to walk through that door into a hockey locker room. Don't forget that. Like, because as much as it's been given or earned, it can be taken away as well. So every day you walk through a hockey locker room, thank your lucky stars that you get to go through a locker room because it's a privilege to go through that door and be part of a team. It's when you start getting ahead of yourself and your expectations of yourself or what you're not getting and what other people are getting and, and stuff that you start fumbling yourself. And it, it's 
for me, it's important. Like, you know, be grateful for what you have, you know, thrive for what you want, work hard, compete, but be grateful every day that you get to walk through a hockey locker room. I try to remind myself of that quite a bit, just on the broadcast side, especially when I'm about to embark on a road trip that I'm not particularly looking forward to. Uh, did you have any of those when you were in junior, a place that you didn't like to go play? Uh, you know what always was the worst part is going west because back then they had the worst rinks. You know, going into Guelph, uh, Guelph Platers, you know, going into Windsor was awful. London was awful. And I don't remember this, Mike. Like I, Teams were built differently. The west had a tougher team with their tougher buildings and – out east with with Oshawa and Peterborough and Ottawa and Kingston, you know, Kingston was three different teams when I played there. They went from the Canadians, the Raiders to the Frontenacs. But I remember going west and it was always like, oh, these buildings are terrible. And they just had tougher teams. Like they had just a little bit more physicality than we did in the Laden Division. It's funny because we've we've talked for the longest time about that east-west divide, and you must have felt like you were almost royalty back in Guelph when they were in the new arena instead of that old auditorium. Oh, the arenas in the OHL. When I came back to coach Guelph, I just could not. Now, first of all, Kitchener is the best arena in the league. Like I, that arena. I, you don't have to cold. just say that. You don't have to just say oh, that. Well, I'm not. <laughs> And in and, and two, well, three fronts, playing there as a player, uh, coaching there. And then when I was in player development with Pittsburgh, going back there to watch games, it, it is, that, that's hockey. It just pulling up there, walking in the arena, that's just hockey. That, that arena to me is just, it's perfect. Now that said, Guelph is amazing. Niagara, Oshawa, Kingston, Windsor, like London, the, the rinks in Ontario Hockey League, are, it's just incredible how the league has come so far in, in these arenas. And, and the facilities are, are just absolutely beautiful. The fan bases and, and the support in the Ontario Hockey League. Did you always know that you were going to take a kick at coaching? I always felt it later on. I, I always did uh, later on. Um, I always... Just, I'm not going to say the X's and O's. It was more of the, I think I could do this. Like I, how you manage people, how do you manage a team and stuff like that. I, I wouldn't say I was completely enthralled with, you know, how a, a D zone coverage or, a, a, a you know, a neutral zone four check was. I was going to reinvent the wheel that way. I always felt that I could manage players and manage a, a team. And that's what attracted me to coaching and, uh, you know, when I got my first opportunity, you, you draw from first thing you can do, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, this is, and this is the God's honest truth. I, I got, uh, I finished in Japan and uh, I went to Bloomington, Illinois. It was called the IHL and uh, they hired me to be a player assistant coach. Fortunately, I broke my leg the second game of the year that allowed me to just coach. So I coached for three, four months after that. And, and then they wanted me to come back and play. And I realized that I, after we talked about going to Japan was supposed to be my last stop. And then I was going to get into coaching. I got hired the next year and I built a, 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 a thing together, like a, a booklet for the ownership group there about what it takes to build a championship team, 
what type of players we're looking for, what type of systems we're going to run. And I presented it to them, blew them away with that, got the job, had a press conference, went down to my office and looked around. I had a phone, I had a fax machine, stapler, a couple highlighters. And I went, I have no clue what I'm doing right now. I'm like, I don't even know any agents at this level. So I started calling the Rick Currens and Anton Thuns and different people like, hey, and they don't have players for that level. And then started learning and developing. And then one thing I can say about coaching is that even though you've played, I played for 16, 17 years, you have to develop as a coach. Like you have to learn from somewhere. And, and I drew from experience. I drew from my experiences with Daryl Sutter. I love Daryl Sutter as a coach. I absolutely love playing for him. I, I got to play for a guy named Paul Baxter. I had Robbie Fatorik. I've had um, Herb Brooks, um, you know, so many great coaches that I drew from that that's how I was. But at the end of the day, I'm not Daryl Sutter. I don't coach like Daryl Sutter. I can't. That's not my personality, but there's things I could draw from him. There's things I could draw from other guys and you start developing. And what really helped me out was when I got the job with the Cincinnati Cyclones in the ECHL, uh, we were affiliated with the Nashville Predators and I got invited to their training camp with Barry Trotz. So I got to sit in Barry Trotz's office for three weeks. Boom. You're just, wow, this is coaching. This is, yes, I have experience and I, had different coaches, but that sort of brought it together. And to spend that time with a guy like Barry Trotz was really something that allowed me to grow and learn and, and just sit there and listen and listen to what Barry and Peter Horchuk and different coaches that are in that office, you got to learn from. You know, I'm just thinking as you rhyme off some more of these places that you've been through in your career, would you change anything? Ooh, um, no, no. Um, I can look back at my professional career. I can look back at my junior career and say I would change maybe something there. Professionally, would I have done, handled the situation differently? Maybe, you know, you make those decisions at the time, what's best for yourself personally, and then you start having a family and you make decisions differently based upon that. Um, you know, Coaching wise, I think there's a different element where you have to play a different game. And I don't, I, I, I like to be myself um, in different places I've coached. I want to be myself. And I've had a tremendous opportunity when I went to Cincinnati under an ownership group there, a guy by the name of Ray Harris, um, our GM, Kristen Rupp. Their philosophy is that we hired you we let you do your job. We're here to support you. And we will give you all the tools you need to be successful. They never got involved with any hockey decisions or anything like that. And it was a great place to grow. What you find in coaching as you go along is that guys that haven't coached want to get involved and you have to coached. You have to understand what it's like to be in that with that team and those personalities and those people and those players come to you especially in major junior with personal stuff they're in tears they're in tears over personal things at home their billets school girlfriend 
uh, pressures, whatever it is, you have a personal connection with them. And, you know, as you go through coaching, it, it, it's, it's, it's so important to let a coach be a coach. You hired him. That was your decision. Now let him do his job. And I think that's the most important thing when you see successful organizations is that there's got to be, there's got to be dialogue. There's got to be communication. There's got to be collaboration and there's got to be cooperation when you have a coach and a general manager ownership. And at the end of the day, you hired someone, let them do their job. With all of the stops throughout your career, does it all just blend together or are there parts of it that stand out for various reasons? I think there's so many different parts that stand out like different like I said, from a song that you remember to where you were in your personal life to where things went along. And uh, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say blend. I think sometimes you look back and go, wow, it's been 35 years. <laughs> you know, holy geez. And you kind of reflect sometimes. And, but no, it, it's very um, this, that, that moment, you know. St. John Flames was a special moment for me in 96, 97, 95, 96, 96, 97. That was a special moment for me in my career. It, it really changed the course of my career because, you know, I was 26th overall pick. I was an offensive guy. I was going to be a top six NHL player. That's in my mind. That's what I am. You know, I disregard for defense. I'm a top skilled guy to play in the NHL. Got my games, 22, 23, started fading up. I'm not getting called up anymore. I'm not getting called up. I got to traded from Anaheim Mighty Ducks to the Calgary Flames. And uh, Paul Baxter basically one day came to me and said, do you want to play in the NHL? And I said, yeah. He goes, I don't think you do. And I was like, what do you mean? I, I want to play in the NHL. He goes, I don't think you do. You want to play in the NHL, you will do these things that I tell you to do, and you will get to the NHL. And it was all defending. It was winning puck battles, competing, finishing checks, defense first, stuff that I didn't think I had to do because I was going to be a top six guy. If it wasn't for those moments, I would have faded off into a couple more American League deals and probably been at Europe at 26, 27, Changed my game, signed with San Jose. Now I'm getting called up as a fourth-line centerman in San Jose. Get my 20, 30 games, whatever it was, because I had to change my game. I was not going to be a top six NHL guy on any NHL team. And it allowed me to get signed by Atlanta, allowed me to get signed by the Dallas Stars later in my career because I could be a depth guy because I learned at least to pay attention to defending. Tell me the story of your first NHL goal. Oh, man. Madison Square Garden. Oh, and, good place to get it, Juice. Yeah. Um, on the ice was Messier, Graves, Amante, Leach, Jeff Bukaboom, and Annette was Mike Richter. It was, uh, I believe the game was tied third period, and um, Richter came skating out of the net, went to play it, misplayed it. Dougie Brown knocked it down, and I put it in the empty net. And it was just crazy. But the when I, well, first of all, that was incredible score. I think it was my fourth or fifth NHL game. And I scored and ended up being the game winner. And what was still to this day was like after the game, again, you don't, you're never in these moments. You don't know. Here you're at the Mecca 
of the sports entertainment of the world, Madison Square Garden. Devils just beat the Rangers. Come in, and I have the media throng at my stall. That was surreal. Being, you know, 20 years old and having beat writers in New York City, the New York Post, the New York Times, and New Jersey Star Ledger, all these outlets just like interviewing. And it was it was incredible. That's amazing. I can only imagine. Speaking of writers, I, I came across an excerpt uh, from a book written about Dan Snyder. And you were quoted in there. Dan is obviously somebody that's well known in the community that I call home here in the region of Waterloo. And you described him as a good friend. What do you, what can you tell us about Dan? Uh, he, he was the absolute best. I, you know, I still have my, on his grave site in Elmira on my arm. And uh, here's the thing I, about Dan was um, I signed with the Atlanta Thrashers. I made the team. I met him at training camp and right away we kind of hit it off. Now there's an age gap. I was 29 turning 30 and he would have been only about 22 and met him at camp. Nice kid works hard. You know, he got sent down to Orlando. I, I made the team out of camp and then eventually found my way to Orlando and I remember it was our first road trip in uh, uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba Moose. And we went out to eat after, of course, went to Earl's. Everybody goes to Earl's. And man, we were just talking Toronto Blue Jays baseball from the eighties and nineties. And I was like, I was like thinking, how old is this kid? Like we, me and I, it was like, he was 30 and me and him just hit it off from there. We became great friends. One of the best teammates, you could ever ask for like I mean this guy will do anything for his teammates anything for his team um you know people pass and you say oh he was the best he was the greatest but truly one of the the, the greatest people I have met in in all my journeys on the ice off the ice everywhere and uh you know it was uh it was very very difficult time for my family uh, my daughter she called him uh, you know Mr. Dan um and, you know, going to Elmira and experiencing, you know, his funeral and stuff was, um, man, that was, that was tough. And any chance I ever had when I was in Guelph, when I was going through Elmira, I would stop up at the Mennonite church and, uh, you know, see his gravesite and stuff and still close with his mom and dad and his brother and his uncle Skip, who used to coach the Kitchener Rangers and uh, um, think about him a lot. To this day, 2023, it's gonna it's been a long time, but still think of them uh not every day, every other day. I always stop at the uh picture they have of him in the trophy case uh at the Bayshore in Owen Sound. Um, make a point of that too, for sure. Uh, I'm always cognizant of the time uh that I, I want this to go on forever. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. It's getting late in the evening for you with the time change. Uh but I, I want to go back to this and forgive me for looking at my phone, but I wanted to make sure I got it right because one of those other teammates that I referenced, I wanted to save this till the end. Uh, you can tell him that you heard that he didn't like to pick up pucks after practice in his career. So I've heard this, uh, Jared Scaldi. Why were you too good to pick up pucks after practice? I, I think it was more the individual that if if, if, if I can re recollect this story, okay, yeah, he will probably have a different view. But I remember it was always the last guy off the ice, the last couple guys, and I remember I was at one end, and that individual sprinted up the ice so he didn't have to. And I remember saying something to him, 
and he skated back on and we began to fight and helmet smoking each other with helmets over who's going to pick up the pucks. And I believe I got the worst of it because he was pretty tough. He was pretty tough. Uh, player. He lives in Peterborough, by the way. And um, he was smoking me with my, I think my own helmet after tripping him for not picking up pucks. And uh, we can, we can laugh on it today. He would still hammer me today with a helmet and beat the tar out of me to this day. But uh, I don't live in Peterborough. Okay, so clearly, you know exactly who told that story. The funny thing is that Corey Banica says you were beating him over his head with his own helmet, not the other way around. He also said that there are a few stories that uh, he would take to his grave with him, which I completely understand. Good teammate. You said that before. Uh, anything that we should know, I'm going to get Corey on this podcast pretty soon, but uh, anything we should know about him besides, did you, did you mention he lives in Peterborough? He yeah, lives in Peterborough, um, and uh, I don't know if this is appropriate to say, but there, we had an expression. I don't know if you have to cut this out, but like he lives where newlyweds and nearly nearly deads reside now. So that's Peterborough. I don't know if that's inappropriate or not. I'm not sure. You might have to decide, but I always say, I'm like, what are you doing there? But anyways, <laughs> just, just goes back to Oshawa, Peterborough. Nothing against people of Peterborough. I'm sure they're amazing people. It's that color of their uniform and that peach thing that just set, sets me off. But uh, one thing about bands is that, man, you want a, a, an inspiration for young guys to show resilience. Like, you know, he was not a prospect. He was a local Oshawa guy that just kept trying out for the generals, kept trying out for the generals, finally makes it, does whatever he has to do to stay there does it has success. Now he's got to move into pro still not a prospect five foot nine, you know, tough kid can skate everything. And he grinds out a pro career, especially in Hershey. I hated playing against him. I would, I believe I was in Utica. He was in Hershey and Oh my God, it was like just a dog on a bone all the time. And it just, just shows you the, you know, the resilience of him and his, and then he's taken into his scouting too. You know what I mean? He, he's professional, he works hard, but um, you know, besides that, besides him beating me with my own helmet over my head in practice, I absolutely love the guy. He's, he's pretty hard to not like, are we going to see you back on this side of the pond? I mean, for a guy that's moved around as much as you have, but we're, we're talking with you in Europe and me here in Waterloo region right now, we're going to get you back over here at some point. I hope so. You know what? I, I, w one thing that's always, um, you know, when I started, you, you never know where pro coaching goes. You, you just really, when I retired, I thought that there'd be at the time 30 NHL teams. I thought 15 would be calling me to hire me as an assistant coach in the American hockey league because of my experience. It doesn't work that way. It's not how it is. It's, you know, knowing some people working on your craft, going to seminars, all that stuff. And once I start, started going and I was like, I've always been drawn to the Ontario Hockey League. Like, and, and I interviewed for the Oshawa Generals job with Jeff Tui when he was there. Um, just didn't know the league well enough. You know how there's, there's a lot to know about the Ontario Hockey League. There's a lot to know about, about coaching teenagers. And then when I got the job in Guelph, it was an absolute honor to represent the Ontario Hockey League, represent the Guelph Storm and what, what really was amazing is the people you reconnect with 
going back to Ontario from scouts on different teams to NHL scouts, to, to media, to people, to, to walk into the Scotiabank pond in Toronto. My son was playing in the GTHL at the time and to see Mr. Branch and I cannot help, but not call him Mr. Branch. You know, that's, he's, that's who he is. He's Mr. Branch to me. He's like, Jared, call me David. I'm like, I can't call you David. You're Mr. Branch. Like I, and, and just to see, all these amazing people that are continually doing great things around the league. And again, from the media to the scouting to coaches. And it, it was a, it was an, a great experience to be part of the Terry hockey league. Again. This has been a, a great opportunity for me. I've, I've enjoyed every minute of this. I think I could go on for another 65 or 70, but I really do have to uh, let you get back to life over there. Uh, thanks for doing this. It's been great. And I, I hope we see you back on this side and in, in the O in some capacity in the not too distant future. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. It was great speaking with you. And uh, um, yeah, I hope to see you over there sometime soon. Hi, I'm Emily Roger. And I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.